0: Hello friends! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Peter Attia. He's a physician, longevity expert, podcaster, and an author. Working out what to actually do if we want to maximize our health and lifespan has become an increasingly difficult task. There are an unlimited number of wellness approaches available, but thankfully Dr. Atier has spent his career assessing the most important strategies we should all be focusing on for fitness and longevity. Expect to learn how best to increase your chances of living longer, the role of fasting in longevity, the most important metric that predicts a long, healthy life, the long-term effects of vaping and alcohol, how you can prevent cognitive decline, the vital signs that everyone overlooks, how to design a science-backed weekly workout regime, and much more. I am a big fan of the approach that Peter has today. It is evidence-based, it is grounded in science. And it's very simple to apply. I very much appreciate the work that he does. Don't forget that if you are listening, you might not be subscribed, and that means you're going to miss episodes when they go up. It also supports the show. It helps me get bigger and better guests, and it makes me very happy indeed. So go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you are listening and press the subscribe button. I thank you. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Peter Atia. Would you say that you have a unique or different perspective when it comes to longevity?
1: Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh, yeah, maybe in some ways I do, I suppose.
0: It seems to me that you're focusing on not just lifespan, but also health span as well, not just physical health, emotional health, mental health. That more holistic view uh, seems to be different to me.
1: Yeah. And also uh, I think kind of a somewhat low tech approach as well. Um, and I'm completely interested in, you know, fascinated by obsessed with all the high tech stuff and the, you know, the science that hopefully will come through in the, in the coming decades. But I, you know, maybe going back to my background in, in risk management, I really think everyone should always be hedging everything they're doing. So, you know, to just assume that we're going to come up with some, amazing technological breakthrough that's going to, you know, start to defy aging while not doing all of the things that we can do with the technology that exists today strikes me as unwise.
0: What's that background in risk management?
1: Um, I After I left my first stint in medicine in 2006, I went to work for the consulting firm McKinsey & Company. And uh, though I was recruited there to do healthcare, I ultimately uh, wound up in the risk practice because of my background in math. So Uh, I, yeah, I was doing, you know, credit risk and, uh, cool stuff like that. All right. And how does that inform the way that you show up for your work now? Um, I think it's essential, right? I think, I think everybody should be trained in some understanding of, of risk. Everyone should be trained in probability statistics. Uh, you know, that's to me the much more important stuff in mathematics. Um, and I, I think that understanding how to think about, uh, symmetric and asymmetric risk understanding expected value, uh, thinking about how to hedge risk. All of those things are, you know, important, not just in, you know, thinking through financial instruments where banks are constantly making mistakes anyway, but as you think about your own life. So I'll give you a, a very silly example. So, uh, two weeks ago, a friend said, Hey, you want to come, you know, skiing, you know, he's going to go to this amazing place and ski. And I said, no, he's like, how do you not want to do this? And I was like, well, I don't personally get enough pleasure from skiing to justify the downside, right? So the upside for me to go skiing with you is this much. The downside is this much. But that's my decision. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go skiing, right? Because for him, the upside is probably much larger Mm -hmm. and maybe he's a much better skier than I am, so his downside is much less. But it's thinking through simple things like that. Every decision I make, I sort of put through that matrix.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I'm interested by this. Low tech approach that you've mentioned. And I, I keep on bringing this up. Uh, mutual friend Andrew Huberman, uh, yourself, it has really been at sort of the forefront, I think. And Kelly Storette's new uh, new book um, is almost sort of stripping things back a little bit. Uh, there was a, a movement, you know, 10 years ago, the sort of advent, the absolute like frontier of the biohacking quantified self. And it really seems like that's not being reversed, but being taken back to, um, a much more simple set of rules for people to follow.
1: Yeah, look, I think they're not mutually exclusive, and I'm certainly no stranger to all of those things. And I probably still do things that most people would consider excessive when it comes to, you know, tracking things and monitoring things and incorporating technology into what I do. But the reality of it is, you know, having a very high VO2 max, being incredibly strong that's going to do more for your lifespan and health span than any piece of technology or biohacking or manipulation of gut biome or any other thing that people are talking about. I mean, it's just not even within the same zip code. And you don't need a lot of technology to do those things. You you just need to put in the work.
0: Well, it seems to me that one of the longest levers is compliance on whatever the program is that you're going to do. And One of the problems that I found, certainly, I I struggled tracking macros. Right, I've always struggled tracking macros. So for me, learning what intuitive eating felt like actually meant that I adhered to my diet more effectively than setting the bar for compliance so high that I just constantly failed and then I didn't get any motivation from doing it. And I feel like that is a little microcosm for tons and tons and tons of ways where the bar has been set too high for people to actually access these protocols.
1: Yeah, everybody's got to figure out the system that works for them. I think uh, using nutrition as an example. So, um, you know, as I talk about in the book, there's basically three ways to go about reducing intake. So if you're overnourished, which is the kind of way I describe people that have too much body fat especially in places where you don't want it, right? So it's not really the subcutaneous fat we're worried about. It's the visceral fat. It's the intramuscular fat. It's the peripancreatic fat, uh, perinephric fat, all of those things that are metabolically destructive. So not the cosmetic fat that actually has no metabolic um, consequence. So let's assume you establish that a person needs to, you know, me, I need to lose, I need to reduce energy intake. I can do it by calorie counting or tracking my macros. I can do it by dietary restriction, by sort of identifying things within the diet that I don't want to eat and limiting them. Or I can do it via time restriction, just narrowing the window down in which I eat. Each of those has its pros and cons. But what matters is that you figure out what kind of works for you. So for me personally, dietary restriction has always produced the best outcomes. If I simply pick certain boogeymans in the diet and say, I'm not going to eat those things, everything falls into line. Whereas when I track macros, which by the way, sometimes produces Better results in the short term. Mm-hmm. It can be harder to maintain. Conversely, I have friends who can track macros all day long, every day, um, and they can do it automatically. Like yeah. they don't have to be in an. I'm not app built doing like that, it. man. I'm not
0: built like that in the slightest,
1: and and that's okay. I mean, again, I think the point is, I, I you know, sort of would want my patients, for example, to try all three and figure out which one works for them. Um, and as I always say, like you're better off being seven out of ten in performance, but doing it every single day than being 10 out of 10 some days, zero out of 10 other days. And um, you know that kind of cyclic performance generally leads to worse outcomes over the long run.
0: One of my friends, Alex, mentioned to me the other day that most people have a bucket of perhaps between five and 10 meals that they typically eat. And he said that one of the longest levers when it comes to altering your diet is to just look at those five to 10 meals, even forget about everything else. It's like, what do you eat the most? You probably have for me, it's like four recipes that I go back to very consistently. Okay, what's that constituted of? And how can you just tinker with that a little bit for it to be closer to what your goals are? I thought, holy shit, like that's such a low-tech solution. And yet, in terms of what it does, does it grow any corn? Does it actually work? Probably super effective.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I enjoy most about macro tracking when I do it is, you know, the app I use, which is called Carbon, has you know, and I'm sure this is true of any of the apps now. They're all so much better than they used to be 15 years ago when I started trying to pay attention to this. But you basically put in your recipes. So you're not necessarily going to pre-populated you know, populated things. You're saying, look, when I make an omelet, I always do it the same way. It's eight egg whites, it's four yolks, it's half a tablespoon of butter. have been doing it for
0: 25 years. It's the exact percent, same right? way every time. So yep, I just yep. click,
1: click, 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 and now I can know. And you're, and you're absolutely right. There's probably no more than about six things that are constituting 80% of what I eat. Talk to me about the difference between slow death and long death. Ah, okay. So um, – I mean, as the name suggests, it really comes down to the rate of time between when the onset of the illness takes place and when you demise. So if you think about the greatest successes in medicine, our current medical system, what I call medicine 2.0, medicine 2.0 is remarkably successful in treating fast death. So um, when you think about trauma, you think about a person who's, you know, driving down the street, a car hits another car and, you know, they suffer a significant injury that 100 years ago would have killed them, we now have, you know, remarkable capacity to save lives in that situation. Infectious diseases, of course, would be the poster child for this. Uh, Again, up until 150 years ago, we stood no chance against uh, most infections. And today, you know, some of the most devastating bacteria barely, you know, touch the surface. And, and, And by the way, viruses that once you know wiped out civilizations we can now vaccinate against and all these things so um we've effectively doubled human lifespan uh going from about 40 to 80 years by treating fast death so big win for medicine 2.0 um the problem is we haven't really made much progress against slow death so slow death is what most people think of when they actually think of death now. When you think of cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, metabolic disease, those are slow deaths. Even when a person drops dead suddenly of a heart attack, right? A person who's been asymptomatic their whole life and drops dead suddenly of a heart attack, that disease was killing them for 30 years. So unfortunately, we just haven't made much progress there. And as I argue, that's where we have to make progress. That that has to be the transition if we want to be serious about longevity.
0: Why is that not a priority currently?
1: I don't think it's not a priority. I think we just have the wrong strategy. So um, if you have the wrong strategy, you will fail. And I would argue that we don't have the right strategy for addressing those problems. So it's not due to a lack of trying. I think we've been trying very hard to eradicate slow death. And I would argue that the fact that we've had such little success given the enormous resources that have been put in, both financially and simply sheer effort, uh, I think is proof positive that we need a different approach. We're going to go through a
0: lot of insights today that people can apply to their lives. Before we even get into that, how should someone think about building a framework of how they can take the tactics that we talk about today and actually use them? As we mentioned at the very start, compliance, adherence can have the best strategy in the world. If you don't end up applying it, it means nothing. What is your uh, best advice on how people can form a framework of tools that they can actually use?
1: Well, I think you have to start with the objective. Uh, so so everything I talk about, I've always talked about this way, uh, or at least you know for more than a decade. And I certainly have written the book through this lens, which is you go from objective to strategy to tactics. So we always want to start with the objective. And I do think it's worth being clear for any individual what their objective is. Uh, And I I take a lot of time with patients going through this. So, um, you know, when you go to your doctor, that's not a common question. What is your objective? Um, And again, it's not the fault of the doctor. I think it's the fault of the system. The system isn't really set up to ask that question. The set up the system is more set up to kind of play a bit of whack a mole. Is there a problem right now? Is there a symptom right now that I need to address? But if you are trying to play this sort of long game, you have to work backwards and say, okay what do you want to be true at the end of your life? And the, the framework that I use for that is called the marginal decade. So the marginal decade is the last decade of your life. Everyone will have a marginal decade. And that's not a pleasant thought for many of us to think about, right? I don't love thinking about the fact that I'm going to have a marginal decade, but I will. Now, you never know the day you enter your marginal decade, um, but many people know when they are in it. And the question then becomes, what do you want to be true in that decade? So let's play the game with you. How old are you, Chris? 35. Okay. So let's assume that, you know, fate will smile on you and, you know, God forbid, you're not going to have some premature death. You know, you're not going to die in a car accident next week or be stricken with cancer in, you know, 10 years or something like that. So let's just assume your marginal decade is kind of the ninth to 10th decade of your life. What do you want to be true in that decade? I would like to still be able to move without assistance. I what would, kind of moving?
0: Uh I would love to be able to still walk. Okay. Uh, I would love to be I'm adore dogs. So being able to take the dog for a walk, being able to throw the ball. How big a dog? Golden Retriever. Okay. Is that a big dog? Yeah. Big for a 90 year old? Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Okay. Yeah, this is you
1: can be ambitious
0: here. I am ambitious. Yeah. Big golden retriever. Okay. Um, I would so you lo- want
1: to be able to walk a golden retriever? Yep. How far?
0: Thirty minutes on a morning. Thirty minutes a day, okay. Yep. Uh, maybe twice a day if I could at best. Hills or no hills? Uh not so fussed about hills. Okay. Hills can hills can go. But do you want to live in a house that's got uh, a balcony? Okay. So would need to be able to go up and down stairs. Okay. Um would love to still be able to pick up grandchildren. I have no idea whether that's realistic at 90 years old, but that would be something I'd love to do. Pick them up from the floor from a crib. Both. Where? Okay. Um would love to have still a good quality of sleep. Um and would love to be able to have sex at 90? Yep. Not something I've considered. Good question. Okay. Let's say yes. Let's say yes, I'm still going at 90. Okay. Um And probably most importantly, above all of this, is still have proper cognitive function. Like still, I I value the quality of my thoughts more than anything Mm -hmm. on the planet. Um, I still want to be able to learn. I still want to be able to satisfy my curiosity. You know, if I was still able to have conversations like this at 90, that would be just fantastic
1: to me. Uh, I assume you don't want to be in pain? That would be good. Okay. So again, we could drill into this a lot further, but I think what would emerge, and by the way, this is is a valuable exercise because I don't think a lot of people do this. Um, But I I think everybody needs to do this and needs to go really far down the rabbit hole. And what you'll realize is, um, by the way, everything you've said is totally reasonable. Like I have some people when you play this game with them, you know, the first thing they say is I want to be heli skiing when I'm 90. And it's like, I'm not going to tell you that's not possible, but like that that's the first thing you would say is a little odd, right? But everything you're saying is 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 achievable, but is challenging. So, for example, walking a golden retriever um, at the age of thirty five, you don't even have to think about it. But if you actually look at the force that's in that leash and the amount of balance and strength and lower leg variability, you need to not fall over when that's happening by the time you're in your seventies, that's going to be very difficult. So you have to build up an enormous reserve in those capacities today to cope with and anticipate the inevitable decline that's going to come in all of those. Um, so, so that's, that's how you start. You start with the objective, you reverse engineer what the implication of each objective is Mm -hmm. and you, you you know, you you, you under, we understand pretty well what the decline of those properties looks like. I need to stop you there. How realistic is it
0: for some male in his 90s to still be able to have sex without any assistance?
1: Well, it depends how you define assistance. I think the use of like phosphodiesterase inhibitors is probably going to be required. What's that? Like a, a drug like Viagra or Cialis. Understood. Um, <clears throat> but otherwise, I think it is realistic um but again like think about what that comes down to so a big part of that is going to come down to your microvascular system so there's a reason that you know having type 2 diabetes having atherosclerosis is an enormous cause of impotence it's it's not affecting your brain what it's affecting is the microvasculature the blood flow of the penis so there's a there's an argument for being very metabolically healthy. I mean, I see this even in patients who are in their 50s and 60s who at one point are completely dependent on drugs like Cialis mm. and then you get them metabolically healthy and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I don't need this anymore. I wonder how many
0: men who aren't that concerned about getting overweight, who aren't that concerned about losing a foot, but if you told them that their penis would stop working, that would be the final motivation for them to look after their diet. Whatever it takes. <laughs> okay. So we've got uh, objective.
1: Yep. Then we have to think about what the strategy is, right? And this is where I think, um, It's very complicated in this problem. Is this where people get lost? I think so. I think this is the step that most people just skip altogether and go right to the tactics. So they say, okay, I I hear you on objectives. Now tell me how to eat, how to exercise, how to sleep, et cetera. Um, And I think you can't skip this bucket. And there's a reason that those like chapters in the book that are devoted to this. Um, If you're playing um, if you're, if you're trying to, if you're asking questions that are straightforward, you don't really need a strategy. So if you said to me, Peter, my objective right now is not to get a sunburn. I don't, we don't need a major strategy. Like it's relatively straight. We can go straight to tactics. You're going to avoid the sun altogether. If you need to be in the sun, you're going to wear long sleeves and a hat and you're going to wear sunscreen and blah, blah, blah. blah. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. But when you say my objective is to live 10 years longer than I otherwise would and do so at a much higher function as evidenced by that list of things you just said, well, I can't just jump to tactics. They're not obvious. So instead I have to go through a whole bunch of indirect measures because I don't have what I really want, right? What I really want is I'd love to be able to rely on the gold standard, which is randomized controlled experiments that would give me the answer. But for reasons that are self-evident and obvious and not worth explaining, we don't have randomized controlled experiments that answer all the questions um, that pertain to taking a 35-year-old and setting him up to be the best 95-year-old. So we have to have an option B. And option B really rests on a whole bunch of other pillars of strategic insight. So one of those things is what are the inferences we can make from observational data of long-lived well-functioned humans? So looking at the centenarians, for example, who we very quickly figure out are genetically gifted. So their, 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 their superpower was picking the right parents, um, but we can still learn a lot from them. Uh, we'll put that aside for a moment. The other thing we, we can look at is short-term human studies that don't cover the heart outcome, such as the full duration of your life, but cover certain things. So for example, there might be heart outcome studies that look at heart disease or stroke, or heart outcomes that look at performance and functional metrics such as strength, resilience, and things like that. We then look at animal literature, or non-human literature, I think to be more accurate, that looks at the full duration outcome. So I think we can look at some of those animal studies and get a pretty good sense of what's affecting lifespan and healthspan, but we have to be careful with it like we do with everything in that we, we want to be very thoughtful that we're not just sort of zeroing in on one model. So this is again where, where we look at things that favor lots of models. So you know something that's consistent across mice and worms and flies and dogs is much more interesting than something that is only going to work in one mouse model in one person's lab. Then we want to look at mechanistic studies. So, how can we understand, for example, the benefits of exercise when we look at the cellular level, when we understand them, you know, when we look at proteomic, metabolomic changes of exercise? And how do, you know, what do those things tell us as an example about, say, exercise or sleep restriction or dietary restriction? And then the final tool that I think we look at in our strategy bucket is Mendelian randomization. So, sometimes You actually let nature do the randomized controlled experiment for you. So, Mendelian randomizations are very elegant types of studies where, when you can find genes that are responsible for phenotypes of interest, you can ask the question as nature shuffles those genes, do we establish causality by the outcome? So, when you put all five of those together, that's how you start to cobble together what your tactics are. And that's the final piece of it. So, what are your tactics? You basically have five domains. You have all things that pertain to what you eat, all things that pertain to how you exercise and move, how you sleep, all the drugs, molecules, supplements, hormones that you could possibly take, and then all that, you know, call it the bucket of things that you would do to manage emotional and mental health.
0: When you break it down like that, longevity seems very simple, that you have these five key areas that you're focused on. Where are people Focusing their attention, in your opinion, when it comes to both health span and lifespan longevity, that have the shortest levers, but people are giving undue attention to.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. I I think what's what I find funny is that everybody, and I'm sure I mean I'm not sure. I know I've been guilty of this myself. It's it's very tempting to just focus on your favorite thing. Like there was a point in time where virtually all of my attention was focused on nutrition. Like I really felt that nutrition was the, the alpha and the omega of this entire equation. And all you had to do was sort of eat a certain way and everything was going to work itself out. Um, Obviously the medical establishment is hyper-focused on the, the medicine side of this as evidenced by the fact that's the only thing we learned in medical school and residency, right? It's not like anybody taught you how to, to administer exercise or nutrition. Even if you knew that those things mattered, you had no education in how to actually do anything about it. It would sort of be like an oncologist who knows chemotherapy is good, but doesn't know anything else. Like doesn't know which chemotherapy or what dose or what schedule or what biomarkers to use to track the progress of the chemotherapy in the, um, you know, in the tumor as it regresses. So, um, so each, each each entity, I think, just kind of has their own expertise. Um, you, you know, where I stand today, I would say a lot of people are kind of majoring in the minor and minoring in the major when it comes to nutrition is sort of a belief that I have. I, I think once you get beyond the real fundamentals of energy balance and protein intake, I honestly think a lot of people are spending too much time um, thinking about the finer details of it Um, and, and, and the evidence, at least at this point in time is not really there in an overwhelming way to say that it matters a whole heck of a lot. Once you achieve that, in other words, there are multiple different ways to achieve energy balance, to achieve, you know, adequate distribution of fats, macronutrients, and things like that. But the belief system that I once had, and that I think many others have that, you know, this exact ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 is what's essential. If that's true, it's not based on any evidence as of this time.
0: You've mentioned the protein intake, very important. What are your thoughts on this current movement at the moment, which is people um, avoiding and sometimes demonizing meat consumption because of activating the mTOR pathway?
1: Yeah, I think there's a bit of a confusion between chronic activation of the mTOR pathway and acute activation. So we do need mTOR to be active sometimes, right? I mean, mTOR is the most important amino acid sensor we have in our body. And if we want to be in a uh, in an anabolic state at sometimes, which we do, it's going to have to be activated, right? In fact, I would argue that the three most important amino acids, leucine, lysine, methionine, will mTOR is the leucine sensor, right? I mean, leucine and mTOR were sort of made for each other. Um, This is very different from the metabolically ill person whose mTOR level is probably chronically elevated. There's also an issue with tissue specificity. And again, part of the challenge here is in humans, we have no way of measuring this. So we can measure this stuff in mice. You can sort of look at mTOR activation in muscle versus liver versus some other tissue. In um, humans, we can't do any of this. We don't have uh, what, what David Sabatini refers to as an mTOR integrator, a signal integrator. So the sort of the way that hemoglobin A1C is an integrating function of average glucose, right? It integrates glucose level over the previous three months, roughly. We don't have a tool like that to measure mTOR activity. So um, again, I think that the the belief that we need to limit amino acids to limit mTOR activity is is a is a, kind of a backwards way to think about it. What that's really going to do is create a situation of sarcopenia, which What's is uh, muscle like loss of muscle as we age.
0: Okay, yeah. Surely, though, if people are consuming three to four servings of twenty-five to fifty grams of protein per day, is that not just going to continue to just spike mTOR? Does that not end up netting out at mTOR just being elevated throughout the day?
1: Not necessarily, I mean, you have to remember the the um, the duration that you know free amino acids stay in your circulation is pretty low. Um, you're also probably still spending twelve to at least fourteen hours a day when you're not eating. right mm. so even so so, so so I'm someone who probably takes a lot of effort to consume you know one point eight to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, and that's going to be spread out over three to four meals but there's probably still 14 hours a day when I'm not eating anything. And during that period of time, those amino acid levels are gonna be really low.
0: I heard about you doing some very extreme fasts over the last few years. Talk to me about those.
1: Yeah, I don't do that anymore, but I used to do a lot of fasting for many years. I would you know, do a seven to 10 day fast quarterly and a three day fast monthly. That's intense. That seems intense yeah. to me. You know, I'm
0: someone that's done intermittent fasting. I sat down with David Sinclair four and a half years ago, I think, in his office at Harvard. Uh, and, you know, when David first came onto the scene, which was the first time I'd really, really heard intermittent fasting as it, being pushed as a, a longevity lever, uh, I thought, well, this is great. Like, You know, it's something that I can do. It's for the lazy among us. It actually makes... Eating food easier because we've managed to um, reword skipping breakfast as doing intermittent fasting. <laughs> but I found it incredibly difficult to blend staying fit, staying muscular, and doing intermittent fasting. I really, really struggled to make that work. Um, what have you, first off, why have you changed your approach to intermittent fasting? I know that you've gained a, a ton of muscle recently. Um, and How have you worked in blending your understanding of intermittent fasting and its positive benefits with the fact that you want to look good, feel good, perform well?
1: Yeah, so again, I still think going back to kind of what are the three ways that you can reduce caloric intake, you you can calorie restrict directly, so just track and reduce globally. You can dietary restrict, which is pick certain elements within the diet, carbs, fat, whatever, restrict. Um, or you can time restrict, create a smaller and smaller window in which to eat. Um, the biggest drawback of that final strategy, which again is a viable strategy, but the biggest drawback of it, in my opinion, is the the reduction in protein intake. So uh, this has been borne out in the literature. so we've seen we've seen clinical trials that have documented this that first and foremost, the time restricted feeding within that 24 hour period doesn't seem to produce any benefits above the caloric restriction that it brings. That's a very important caveat. Okay. it's just Meaning there is nothing magical about the time restriction beyond the calories that are being restricted. Wow. Okay. So the hunger signal that
0: people get, which is those of us that have taken like the, the Sinclair red pill, um, th- this is a signal that I'm hungry. This is hormesis happening. This is discomfort. This is good for me. Has no different impact than... Small amounts of satiation throughout the day, with
1: there's nothing that has been measured or documented in any clinical trial that suggests that that is beneficial over the chloric restriction. In other words, if you're going to eat 2,000 calories spread out over 12 hours, or you're going to eat 2,000 calories spread out over six hours, where you're you know, calorie you know, you're time restricted feeding for 18 hours, we're not seeing any difference. Wow, now, and now that's not uh, here's what's interesting that's often not what happens. So what more likely happens is the person who calorie restricts, um, has an easier time, believe it or not, maintaining muscle mass than the person who time restricts. Why? Probably for two reasons. Uh, although this hasn't been fully teased out in the, in the data cause they're not tracking it this closely. But my, my impression is that when you time restrict, you're just less likely to eat as much protein. And secondly, as you kind of alluded to earlier Um, it's a delicate balance to get the right amount of amino acids into the muscles. You can't have too much and you can't have too little. So what you don't want to do is waste, for lack of a better word, your amino acids down a gluconeogenic pathway where they're basically being used as glucose substrate. What, What would cause that to happen? either too much or too little. So what's too
0: much and what's too little?
1: Yeah, sort of 10 to 20 grams of protein. The liver is going to preferentially take that and use it as glucose and anything over about 50 grams, the liver is going to say, I'm going to take that excess and also make it glucose. So let's just say your number is 180 grams of protein per day, eating 18 servings of 10 grams a day, not going to achieve optimal results. Uh, having one serving of 180, also not going I've, to I've tried both. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that person really probably ought to be doing four servings of 45.
0: Right. So you're saying for most people, it seems like roughly a sweet spot is 25 to 50 grams per serving. Exactly. Right.
1: So in this regard- And that t- that time-restricted feeding guy has a really hard time doing that if he's mm, going to be how, deliberate about that. How big is the gap- when does a feeding yeah, window a great, stop? A great question. Probably about three or four hours. So it's basically impossible Often, for the time restricted feeding person, yes. unless they're willing to eat protein outside of their window.
0: Right. Okay. Which, if you are uh, dogmatic around, if you're dogmatic, it becomes very difficult.
1: Correct. But if you're if you understand that the and what we do with our patients who and who want to do time restricted feeding, because I think it's the easiest one to do. Yep. Like I would agree. It's the easiest one conceptually to do. It's the easiest one to be compliant with. So what we would say is, look, it's just about the calories. So I still want you to have a low calorie protein shake in the morning Mm. where you're going to have 200 calories of, of a protein shake. That's basically just protein, some, you know, cashew milk and a few frozen berries, um, but at least you got that protein dose in. The other thing that I would say leads to what we experience clinically as a lot of people losing muscle mass when they do this is a lot of people exercise in the morning, but their feeding window is in the evening. So now they're creating a little bit of a gap, especially if they're untrained. Um, It's less, less of an issue in a trained individual, but in an untrained individual, we do see some benefits to having the amino acids uh, restored in greater proximity to the training. How worried should we be about artificial sweeteners? You know, I don't know, uh, would be the short answer. I, I think that this is another one of those things where, uh, boy, people really love to demonize these things. Um, but if you if you really just want to look at the facts, let, let's talk about facts, right? So aspartame, which is the original kind of the OG sweetener, uh, everybody loves to demonize aspartame or NutraSweet. But the reality of it is, if there is toxicity to it, it's probably impossible to measure at regular doses. This is a substance that at least the last time I checked had more data on it from a safety perspective than any other molecule tested by the FDA. You're kidding. No, it's, it's just because, again, it's been around since the 1960s, right? So does that mean that if you consume the equivalent of 12 cans of diet soda a day, it's safe? Probably not, but we don't know, right? So, um, where do I think these sweeteners potentially wreak the most havoc? You know, one is i I, I think that they probably increase your appetite for sugar anyway. so if you're if you're consuming them in an effort to avoid sugar, um, you have to be just mindful of the fact that am I robbing Peter to pay Paul? Hmm. Um, if you really want to eliminate sugar as one of your dietary strategies, Uh, you might just be better off reducing sweet things altogether. And what you'll discover, because I've I've done this myself, I've had periods in my life where I've been, you know, very dogmatic about restricting sugar. I'm not that dogmatic about it these days, right? But when I have been, you know, one of the things I noticed was how unbelievably sweet things are that I used to not think were that sweet, like berries, Mm. you know, like, you know, raspberries aren't generally thought of as the sweetest thing in the world. But when you completely eliminate artificial sweeteners and regular sweeteners, you know, after a few months, berries become insanely sweet. You know, 85% chocolate becomes mind-bogglingly sweet, as opposed to what most people would think of it as kind of bitter. Um, you know, there was a recent study published that looked at, uh, one particular sweetener, erythritol, and, um, it was a pretty poorly done study. Um, but it, look, it asks some interesting questions, right? Which is, you know, is a metabolite of this potentially atherogenic? What's again, atherogenic? Uh, would it lead to or cause atherosclerosis? What's that? Cardiovascular disease, sort of the 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 inflammatory disease of the coronary arteries and, and other arteries. Um, again, I, I think the data are, are pretty underwhelming that artificial sweeteners are harmful. But I also think, there's probably a class of differences between them. So my personal favorite of all of them is something called allulose. Um, Allulose is, it's basically natural. It is an enantomer of fructose, meaning it's a molecule that's almost identical to fructose with one very minor structural change. What's unique about it is it has, in my opinion, the best taste because the thing I don't like about artificial sweeteners is I just don't like the taste. I actually like the taste of sugar. I don't like the taste of, you know, saccharin. I don't really like the taste of aspartame. I certainly don't like the taste of stevia. I mean, that to me, it makes me want to vomit. But allulose has the same taste, the same mouthfeel as sugar. And the only drawback is it's only 70% as sweet, which is not a real drawback because you could always dose it up if you want. Uh, It also has the added benefit of it appears to actually reduce blood glucose a little bit. It appears to have a, an effect where it pulls glucose, um, into the kidney and, uh, pr- like basically increases the filtration, the glomerular filtration of glucose. So it slightly lowers glucose, not as potently as something called a, um, an SGLT2 inhibitor, which is a class of drug that does that, but it's, it's, it's very interesting nonetheless. So, um, you know, I guess if I were thinking about how I would consume it, I I would probably consume more allulose than other things. But unfortunately, it's still not that prevalent in foods. You You have to just buy the allulose itself. So if I'm making something, I'll use allulose in it. What I like about this framing
0: is it gets to one of the reasons why doing a randomized control trial for diet stuff is so hard. Because how are you going to be able to control for the psychological training that having a sweet thing, even if it is a zero calorie sweet thing, even if it's a zero calorie sweet thing with no downstream risks to your body, unless you take it at insane dosages, how are you going to be able to control for what that does psychologically to people's expectations of the sweetness of their foods, of the frequency of having sweet things throughout their diet? Um, yeah, I think that's a really nice little microcosm there. One of the other things, I'm wearing a, a, a whoop band at the moment. Um, some people, are drowning in data now, right? We've gone from a world where we knew nothing to where some people know a lot, but I would guess on average that even people who care about the health and fitness are still mostly not wearing a tracker. They're still mostly not getting blood panels done. They're still mostly not going and getting a full body MRI scan, et cetera, et cetera. What are the most important metrics for someone who is completely uh, unindoctrinated into the world of looking at vital signs within their body, what are the most important metrics for people to be looking at?
1: Well, I mean, again, I, I have a pretty long list on that because we're, we're holding ourselves to a pretty high bar. Um, so the way I think about this is what are the inputs to what, what I call the longevity risk assessment? So um, there are basically about seven or eight things that are a threat to your length of life and quality of life we've talked about them already, right? So cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, orthopedic injury, emotional distress, misery, like all those things, right? So how do we know how you're stacking up on all of those things? What are the inputs to do them? So yeah, blood tests, uh, family history, selective genetic testing, colonoscopy, MRI, liquid biopsy, VO2 max test, zone two test, DEXA scan. I mean, the list is long. And I I think in our matrix, we have over 40 things that go into that, or over 40 inputs that go into our risk assessment. And then that risk assessment leads to outputs. So what do you do in response to the, the ranking of risk based on those things? okay, run the matrix, go and do those things, and then let's come back and measure and do again. So it's hard for me to say what the most important is because it really comes down to an individual. So if an individual shows up and they have a significant family history of cardiovascular disease, well, look, a CT angiogram is going to be very important. And a blood test that's measuring LP little a lipids and ApoB is essential because you have to know which, you know, which of these things is responsible for that? Uh, you know, certainly, you know, a continuous blood pressure monitor, uh, or at the at a minimum, you know, we would have patients checking their blood pressure at home two to three times a day for a month. So again, super low tech, right? You might think, how is that interesting? Well, it's enormously interesting because blood pressure is one of the biggest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease. So I- again, people are obsessed with things like, you know, their sleep data, um but don't forget the really you know you know less sexy stuff that we could have measured forever such as blood pressure but knowing how to measure blood pressure accurately is important and i i think you know undiagnosed hypertension is an epidemic in this country what do people get wrong when
0: measuring blood pressure
1: uh, the first thing they get wrong is they don't measure it but assuming they do measure it um they're not stationary for 5 minutes before they measure it they don't have the cuff on correctly they don't have their arm in the right position you know, if your arm is too low or too high, you're going to get an inaccurate reading. Your arm really needs to be, the cuff needs to be right at the level uh, of your heart. Um, you, you have to be very close attention to where the cuff tells you to put it. You know, you want to be about an inch above the break in your arm. And there, there's a, a, cu- a good cuff will tell you where the, how to line it up with the brachial artery in your arm. Um, you don't want to have just had coffee right before you do it. You don't want to be sitting like I am with your legs crossed. Your legs need to be uncrossed. So there's a whole protocol for how to do this. And there was a very good study called the SPRINT study that that really established the, the measurement standard for how to establish um, a, a, a proper measurement for blood reading, which was, you know, five minutes sitting stationary without doing anything stimulating, measurement, five minutes of mm-hmm you know, doing nothing again, repeat measurement, five minutes, repeat measurement. So 15 minutes to get three measurements, taking the average, that's a blood pressure. Now, we don't ask our patients to do that. We ask them to do it once, but two to three times a day.
0: So you should even out any inconsistencies.
1: Yeah. And you'll also notice trends like, are you normal in the mornings, but elevated in the afternoons? And, uh, you know, the data are really clear that anything above 120 over 80 uh, has long-term risk associated with it. And so when we see people that have an elevated blood pressure, we wanna make sure we're addressing that. And there's lots of ways to address it before you have to go down the pharmacologic path. But if you have to go down that path, you're much better off going down it to protect your kidneys, your brain and your heart. What is good and what is bad about different types of cuffs? Are automatic
0: cuffs okay?
1: Yeah, so the gold standard is of course a manual cuff. So having a, an actual person yeah, who's who's got a stethoscope on the brachial artery and measuring your blood pressure. The problem is, unless you're, you know, you have, like, for me, that's what I do typically because my wife can measure my blood pressure. Even I can measure my own blood pressure. So marry
0: someone who is trained for taking (laughs) blood pressure. That's what you're saying.
1: But the automated cuffs are pretty good. Um, In me, they run high. So across the board, automatic um, or automated cuffs tend to run 10 to 15 millimeters per mercury high systolically, and they're accurate diastolically. That's just a glitch. I have never been able to come up with a compelling explanation for why, but I'm not unique in this. Um, I, we do see this uh, in a number of people where the the gold standard runs lower than the than the cuff. Um, so. The challenge of doing an uh, a manual cuff when you're at your doctor's office is the challenge of having your blood pressure checked at the doctor's office. For some people, it produces this syndrome white called coats. white coat hypertension. Where my mom's got that. Yeah, they just you you, you sort of get you know. And, and by the way, the other thing is, most of the time you walk into the doctor's office, they don't even adhere to this principle. Right? Five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of run in from the parking lot, run up the flight of stairs, sit down in the waiting when was room. The last
0: time you had a coffee.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah blah blah. So 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 again, I'm I'm I think that blood pressure is a very difficult thing to to accurately glean in the doctor's office for all of those reasons, and that's why I just think everybody should you know buy one. I I, I don't have any affiliation with any company that makes these things, but I, there's a brand that I like called Omron O M R O N. That's the one we tell our patients to get. You can get these things on Amazon. And um, what are the most common uh,
0: lifestyle interventions? Let's say that someone does get toward that 120 over 80. Yep. Why should they go first? Would you think?
1: Exercise is, is a big one. Aerobic exercise is an enormous way to lower blood pressure as is weight loss. So weight loss is going to be mostly driven by nutrition and then aerobic exercise and, and sleep. So because I track my blood pressure pretty regularly, um, two of the most obvious things that show up when I'm not well slept is, you know, higher blood glucose and higher blood pressure.
0: I went to, uh, Medellin. I went to BioAccelerator down there and got a ton of stem cells for a week. Medellin's at altitude, and they were coming in and testing my blood pressure three, four times a day f- 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 using that, and I had a nurse doing it, which was nice to, you know, to have uh, the sense that a team's there for your health. That was I really enjoyed that part and felt like I was being cared for. Uh, but at altitude, and I'm a heavy guy, uh, at altitude, my blood pressure was not happy. Um, so I came back and I thought, right, I really need to I really need to make a change here. I really need to, because even if it is at altitude, et cetera, et cetera, I was in there with, uh, Al Jermaine Sterling, who is, um, the current UFC 135 champ. Uh, and yes, elite athlete. Yes. Best in the world, literally what he does, but he wasn't struggling. And I figured I, I probably could do with making a change here. So what's
1: the, what's the altitude there? I don't know.
0: I don't know. High, higher than higher than I'm used to. I presume. Um, and you were getting stem cells for what? So they reached out and suggested um, that I go in and get a procedure. I've got two bulging discs, L3, L4, and L5, S1. Uh, that's been uh, an issue for a while, although it is, I've managed to get it to a, a very manageable place now, which I'm very happy with. A um, little bit of rotator cuff, it, just bro injuries. You know, like sometimes my knees are a little bit achy. I had a full Achilles detachment playing cricket. Uh, a couple of years ago, Mm. most most British way that you can do it. Um, So I went in and I had uh, 110 million uh, through IV, two separate ones, uh, oxygen chamber twice, two sessions of that, a bunch of vitamin IVs, two intra-articular shots into the shoulder, uh, quadriceps tendon above and below the patella, uh, and then straight into the Achilles. And then a intradiscal injection into L3, L4, and uh every facet joint as well down my lumbar spine um under general for the uh spine stuff which was great under nothing for the uh local injections which were uh spicy but um that was seven eight seven eight weeks ago now uh and three months is around about the the time when this stuff's supposed to kick in so i'm very much looking forward to seeing uh how that works i enjoyed psychologically it was neutral physically slightly difficult um the sort of uh is it cytokine inflammation response is something to behold um for the next 24 hours it felt like anyone that's had doms after a a three-month break from the gym imagine that kind of stiffness but exclusively in the tendons of the places that have been touched oh god it was so localized and so i was laughing in in, uh, for the next day as i sort of Totted around like a robot um it was a very interesting experience mm. what about health metrics that people are overlooking so we've mentioned you know even the stuff that you've given there in terms of top line probably your vo2 max is your hrv your resting heart rate your blood blah 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 is there something that most people Well, think
1: about how many what, how many people listening to us today do you think know their vo2 max very few yeah very few Yet there is no metric that I am aware of that is more highly correlated with the length of a person's life than their VO2 max. Wow. Why? Not
0: even close. Why why that particular metric?
1: Well, there's probably two things going on, right? One, it actually does matter a lot. It's an amazing proxy for health. Um if you think about have you had a VO2 max test done recently? Not recently. I had one done last one was probably 4 years ago. Okay, so you, you think about how miserable it is, right? Like what is it testing, right? It is testing your maximal consumption of oxygen. Well, to get to that level, we are stressing you to the highest degree possible. It's it it is as its name suggests. It is a maximal VO2 max test. So the higher that number is, the more oxygen your muscles can utilize, the more fit you are, the healthier you are, the more capacity you have uh, to avoid illness. And um, so so I think there's the biological reason for it. I think the other reason for it, as opposed to say your zone two threshold, which I think would probably be equally predictive, um, is that it's a metric that is so ubiquitous. It's very standardized. It's easy to test for conceptually, not necessarily physically. And so you have a metric that we can easily capture. So it's, for example, it's better than like a deadlift. Mm-hmm. Right? In deadlift, there's variability of form. There's too much risk of people getting hurt. It would be a harder metric to track. So you have this metric that you can track. And then the having a high number tells you something about the person right? To have that number, you must be, to have a high number, you must be exercising a lot. And we know the benefits of exercising a lot, right? The person who has a VO2 max at the top 2% of their age, I mean, by definition, they're doing a lot of exercise and exercise has more benefit than probably any other single intervention we can do. So again, it's, I throw that out there because I say like, yeah, we know those things. We know exercise matters, but when it comes right down to it, most people don't know if they're fit enough. Most people don't know their VO2 max. Most people don't know their ALMI, Appendicular Lean Mass Index. They don't actually know how much muscle mass they have. They don't know where they stack up for other people their age and sex. And yet that's also a highly, highly predictive metric of how long you're going to live. They don't actually know how strong they are. They don't know if they're in the top 25% of their age or sex for strength. So I think it just comes kind of back down to the basics, but like we have to know these things. If we, you know, what gets measured gets managed. And if you, if you're not measuring these things, there's, I don't know what you're managing.
0: What is the best protocol that you have found for improving VO2 max in terms of training?
1: Uh, It's two things, right? So, so you want to think of the, 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 The way I think of cardiorespiratory fitness is it's a pyramid. So you have a base to a pyramid and you have a peak to the pyramid and you want the biggest possible pyramid. So the area of the pyramid is your total cardiorespiratory, but also wide. Exactly. So the width of the pyramid is your zone two. That's your sort of aerobic efficiency metric. So. If you And your VO2 max is the height of the pyramid. So if you want a high pyramid, you also need a high base. So you have to do training that widens the base and raises the peak. So the base widening training is what we call zone two training. So again, there's lots of ways to do that, but the simplest way to do it is to train at an RPE that barely allows you to uh, maintain a conversation. So um, the way I describe it to people is, I do my zone two on a bike, uh, on a trainer indoors, right? I'm listening to podcasts and and audiobooks. It's a, it's a pace of training where I'm mostly able to breathe through my nose. Um, but that just speaks to the fact that I have pretty good airways. A better metric is if my wife comes in and talks to me or if the phone rings and it's important and I pick it up, I can carry on a conversation, but it's strained. The person absolutely knows I'm exercising. There's <laughs> well, no confusion. Out. Um, but I can speak. If it if I'm at the point where I can't speak, I'm outside of zone two, I'm into zone three. What uh, heart rate is that? Have you got any idea for you? Yeah, for me, it's uh, typically a heart rate in the high one thirties. Okay, that's a yeah. little higher than I would
0: have guessed, but I yeah, guess that yeah. might speak to your it, it cardiovascular
1: varies. fit. Well, but it also varies day by day. So yesterday I was having such a lousy day, uh, probably because I didn't sleep really well, that that ended up being a heart rate of about 131 to 132. Mm. So it varies. I've had it days where it's as low as 130 and days where it's as high as 145. And how old are you? 50. Wow. So that
0: is, that's still very fit. I'm going to guess that'll speak to the fitness that you've got.
1: Um, well, I think it just speaks to uh, – the bigger point, I think, is that it just speaks to kind of the variability you have in heart rate between individuals. Mm. Um, but then to train the peak of the pyramid, I think the most efficient way to do that – is kind of uh, so. So VO2 max training is maximized between three and eight minute intervals. So if an interval, you will train VO2 max if you're doing something harder than that. If you're only doing something you can hold for thirty seconds or one minute, that will still give VO2 max benefit, but not nearly as much as if you can push it closer to three, four, five minutes, etc. So for me personally, I'm I mostly do that at four minutes. So I'll do four minutes very hard, four minutes of recovery. Four minutes very hard, four minutes of recovery. So I do those also on a bike usually, and I'll do those outside on a hill. So there's a- nice- Oh, so your roads cycling yeah. this. Yeah, so there's a hill near my house that is up. It's a it's a it's just a, a straight hill that's not so steep, like meaning I'm in the saddle. I don't have to be out of this. I'm just in the saddle looking at my power meter and my heart rate and just going very, very hard for four minutes, getting to the top, feeling like I want to puke. Going back down, doing it again. Just repeat, repeat, repeat. Two sets? No, I'll typically do four to six. Okay. How often per week? I just do that once a week. Okay.
0: And that seems to be...
1: Well, again, it's remember what I'm training for now. When I was training as a cyclist, I was doing those types of workouts three times a week. Mm -hmm. And they were much longer and much more grueling. But again, I was optimizing for a much broader array of fitness. But for today, for all I'm doing is, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to be a good... I'm just trying to be fit as a person, not as an athlete. Um, so yeah, once a week of doing a very hard VO2 max set, four times a week doing those lesser zone two sets. How long on zone two? Uh, 45 to 60 minutes a session. Okay, so you're looking at what, 180 to 240 minutes cumulatively per week? Correct. So I'm basically doing four to five weeks of cardio training a week, which is, you know, depends who you ask. Like for by my historical standards, that's very, very low. Um, obviously for some people that would still be considered a lot. Um, I, I think, you know, I think it would be crazy not to want to capture the benefits of something like exercise. Um, so we do, you know, sort of sit down with everybody and say, okay, how much time are you willing to put into exercise? And then that's how we sort of think about how to allocate time across all endeavors, strength, um, you know, stability, aerobic efficiency, peak aerobic power. We, we we do take kind of a portfolio approach to that. But starting through the lens of how much time are you willing to put into it? So someone like me who's willing to put in 10 to 12 hours a week, that's, you know. You can, you can cover see. all of the
0: bases as much as you want, basically. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so you've got four pillars. Strength, stability, VO2 max, zone two. Yep. Strength and sub- stability. Talk to us about that.
1: Um, so strength is probably the easier one for people to understand. Um, you know, that's basically your ability to generate force. Um, and of course, within strength, you have different, you know, different areas of strength. So I don't do a lot of maximal stuff anymore. So in other words, I'm rarely, if ever, I don't think I really ever go below three reps. So the, the heaviest I will go is five reps stuff. So I'll do, you know, I'll do deadlifts that are
0: 5% ish. Um, well, you don't know, you don't know your one RM because you're not doing it. But
1: I can sort of predict it because I do use a velocity tracker. So have you seen these? Yeah, yeah, the bar yeah. speed things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do measure bar speed. Um, so I can have a prediction of it. Yeah. I can have a prediction of one RM. Um, but yeah, usually I'm sort of in the five to fifteen rep range mm. when I'm training. So I'm basically, but but what I'm always trying to do is make sure I'm somewhere between zero and two reps in reserve. Mm, okay. So that's, I'm really training off reps in reserve. Got you. That's my overarching principle of training is so, so even if I'm at five, I'm probably training to one to two rep and reserve. If I'm at 15, I'm still one to two reps in reserve.
0: There's the bodybuilders out there that want to do supersets and drop sets to failure that are tearing their hair out at the moment.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And, and again, I, there are absolutely sets where I do go to failure, but the truth of it is it's very hard to go to failure all the time. I, I I think, I think if people are being brutally honest with themselves, like they still had another one or two set yeah, uh, yeah. reps I, left I, in I, the tank. I, yeah, I I don't I, I I mean I I I know what it's like to go to failure. Um, and I, you don't you you only have so many of those matches every day. Um, so I don't even try to play that game. I just sort of say like, I know I, I've learned that I've got if I stop now, there's only two more I would get before I would violate my form so badly that i would either injure myself or you know just effectively transcending ego lifting is
0: uh one of the most difficult things that you can do forget about the consistency and all of that it's transcending ego lifting um strength formulating a strength protocol across the week what are you prioritizing are you prioritizing large lifts are you prioritizing session length etc cetera, etc cetera?
1: yeah it, it first of all there's there's quite a bit of um variability in my, in my training. Um, but generally I'm doing four days a week and not generally, I'm always doing four days a week and it's two days, lower body, two days, upper body. Now I, I used to, I've for years also done three days of mixed longer sessions, but I prefer what I'm doing now. I prefer doing two lower body days, two upper body days. And, uh, yeah, I prioritize big lifts and I'm sort of working on like, so today I had 24 working sets, uh, of, of upper body, uh, you know, on Monday I had 18 sets of lower body, 18 working sets of lower body and probably on Friday, it'll be a little bit more volume. It'll probably be 22 to 24 sets of lower body uh, working. Sets. In that
0: five to 15. Yes. Uh, which is uh, ish RP eight, E eight, eight, eight and a half. Nine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sometimes maybe as little as seven on some things, especially if you've had the shit night sleep
0: yeah. the night before. Yeah. Um, yeah what when you're looking at movements. For instance, what was your session this morning? Can you remember in terms of exercises?
1: Yeah. So uh I did floor presses. Mm. Uh, Dumbbells. Yep. Yep. I did um pull downs. Mm-hmm. I did incline press. I did row. I did um um like incline curl uh overhead tricep extension And, um, and then a preacher curl, you know, it's not a true preacher bench, but hanging over a bench, doing a preacher to create the same angle Yep. and then, uh, laying tricep extension and then always in between them, I'm doing stability work. So we didn't come to stability, Mm but I'm doing, I do two dedicated days of stability a week. So Tuesday, Thursday, I do a full dedicated hour of stability training. And then on the off days, that's not Tuesday, Thursday, I'm getting in at least 20 minutes of stability per day on on either side of the exercise like throughout the workout so the stuff that we've gone through so far
0: the gym bros will still understand what cardio is the cardio bros will still understand what lifting is nobody understands what What balance training is yeah no one understands what what are the principles behind this no one's ever thought about stability training before uh how do you integrate it into your workouts and then also what does a dedicated session look like
1: yeah, it's very difficult to explain. Um, it's it's actually, I think it was the hardest chapter in the book to write, truthfully, um, because it's it's not it's it's hard enough to show people in videos or to have friends over who want to work out with me and put them through the exercises. That's actually very difficult. Um, so you know i lead with an analogy in the book where i talk about the difference between street cars and track cars cuz i'm a car nut and i being on the racetrack is probably one of my favorite things to do and um so so the analogy i give is is this which is um if you took if you take a street car with very high horsepower and you put it on a track and you let it race against a track car which is lighter less horsepower typically for a given engine size or for a given class size, slick tires on it, which one's going to be faster? I mean, it's no comparison, right? The track car rips the street car into oblivion, even though, by the way, the street car will go faster in a straight line. Um, so the example that I use in the book is a real example. I compare at the time, this is, you know, seven or eight years ago. My street car at the time was like a, uh, an actually a modified E92 M3. Mm-hmm. So I nice. I'd, I'd, nice. I'd, I'd modified it, changed all the airflow. That thing was putting out 475 horsepower. Big German beast. Yep. Yep. And at the time, my track car was a spec E30 M3. I'm sorry, not even an M3, just a spec E30. Okay, right.
0: But everything's stripped out, roll cages in, stiff as hell. Stiff as hell.
1: 165 horsepower. Wow. What engine's in it? Oh, this is the stock engine. Yeah, it's a six in line. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. so you've got the, the the stock 165 horsepower engine. It's very <laughs> light. The car weighs like probably 2,400 pounds versus the m 3s 3,400 pounds. Yeah. M3's got street tires on it. This one's, I'm running, you know, probably hand slicks on it. But to your point, the chassis, stiff as a button. Suspension, super stiff. And yeah, I was going faster in the straightaways in the M3, but my lap time was two seconds faster, which on a track is might as well be a day um, in the spec E30. And of course, what does it come down to? It's cornering speed. What does cornering speed come down to? It comes down to, of the 165 paltry horsepower in that engine, every little bit of it is making it where it belongs. Remember, what is the name of the game in driving a race car? It's all about friction. It's all about power loss. It's all about transmitting what's happening in the crankshaft, to the tire, tire to the street. That's it. You only have four points of contact with the outside world. Nothing else matters. And so again, we're not talking about aerodynamics because these aren't aero cars, right? So in the the street car, first of all, I have much more slippage at the tires because I've got, I'm not running slicks. Secondly, the chassis is so loose. Right, wallowing all over the place. I've got all this, all this energy loss with energy leaking out of that car, not making it to the surface of the track. It's like having laxity in a joint. That's right. So every time you're hurting your knee, you're hurting your elbow. Something's hurting. That's an energy leak. So again, even if one doesn't care about performance, just from an injury perspective, this is something we want to avoid. We want to avoid it. And again, my introduction to stability only came the hard way. It's not like I was born out of the womb realizing this was an important thing. I mean, I had to go through horrible injuries to finally arrive at this place where I said, you know, I'm tired of being in pain. I'm tired of the fact that my elbow hurts when I do pull-ups and, you know, oh, like, half the time I deadlift or squat, my back hurts, you know, my, my SI joint hurts the next day. Like it was just kind of tired of that. And then I got very fortunate in that I landed, um, in the, in the company of a guy named who I write about in the book briefly, his name is Michael Stromsness. And, um, he's a practitioner of something called DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. And the very first time I met him, you know, at the time I was like, uh, my main complaint was, uh, basically my right SI joint and my right elbow. I had tennis elbow having never played tennis. Mm. And he said, all right, you know, take your shirt off and hop up on the bar and do some pull-ups. So I, I did and rattled off, you know, 15 pull-ups or something, which I could do easily at the time. Um, and he's like, Oh, that's horrible. Like those are those are, and by the way, these are good form pull-ups. I'm not doing like bro pull-ups where I'm like jerking up and down. I'm doing like full extension up, like everything perfect. And he's like, yeah, you have no capacity to control your scapula. So your scapula is winged. And in doing so, you are transmitting all of that force into your elbows. Mm. You cannot retract your scapula. You don't have the control. You don't have the stability in the scapula. So you're leaking energy through your scapula into your arms. So to make a very long story short, that that which started in 2017 um, just took me so far down the rabbit hole of not just DNS but other other schools of thought. Uh, I would later go on to meet someone named Beth Lewis through Michael, who um, you know ha- has has her own expertise around um, other other disciplines, and we basically just started piece by piece rebuilding my movements and by the way, that meant spending a year not doing pull ups and not deadlifting as I relearned how to how to align my body again. And so today, I'll still spend two days a week working with a guy here in Austin named Kyler Brown, who's amazing, um, working on just dedicated DNS things. And again, if you watched the exercises I was doing, you would be thinking, what is he doing? You know, like, why is he doing, you know, why is he in these baby positions, like moving in these odd ways? But a, a lot of what DNS is based on is, the idea that up until we were about two years old, we all moved almost perfectly. Um, most of our movement patterns that are corrupt, which we all have as adults, only started to kick in once we were about two. Uh, maybe one, but, but generally about two. So, so there's a very predictable you know, neuromuscular set of, or sequence of movements that are genetically programmed into us. Uh, The ability, you know, the way a child reaches for something, the way a child rolls, the way a child stands, the way a child, you know, gets into a bear position. All of these things are basically hardwired into us. And the goal of this type of training is to basically provide a software update on the crappy software we've, you know, we've, we've, we've overridden that system with. Let's
0: say someone doesn't live in Austin, doesn't have access to your very smart friend.
1: There are lots of DNS practitioners across the country. But um,
0: you would advise
1: doing this with instruction? I think so, yes. Sufficiently I think,
0: complex and nuanced and you I, need I the, think
1: DNS is um, is very difficult to learn. Um, I, I shouldn't say that. I haven't tried to learn it off, you know, videos and online. And, and there might be ways to do it. But, but I, I think, you know, trying to find a practitioner is a good way to start. Um, and then once you have it going, it's, it's always great to, 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 you know, continue on your own. And there's a lot of stuff I do with my friend Kyler that's not DNS. I mean, you know, one of the issues I've been having injury wise, I have very flexible ankles. I think a lot of former swimmers do. And so one of the drawbacks of that is when I do for example, I love doing box step ups.
0: We're both cut from the same cloth. I knew that you were a massive fan of these. They're my favorite movement for yeah, the lower body.
1: I, I absolutely love. Um, I love doing them in all regards. I love doing them very very heavy. I love doing them very very slowly. All of these things. Well, because my ankles are so flexible and I can really really dorsiflex, I have a tendency sometimes when I'm because I like, guess you know when you're when you want to do a step up, the real key to it is preloading the glute and the ham. Correct.
0: Not bouncing off the floor.
1: That's right. So to to preload, you want to be able to shift forward and glide the femur back. Mm -hmm. That creates an enormous stretch, eccentric stretch, so that that front leg is loaded. Boom, you pop up. Okay, well, in doing so, I often will drive my knees so far over my toes because I have the flexibility in my ankles. But sometimes I'll develop a little bit of discomfort there in the front. So one of the things I'm working on with Kyler is soleus strengthening to actually counteract that movement. Bring it back. Yeah. And so the amazing exercises that he has come up with for me to do these, you know, to do soleus strengthening, which um again, you have to you have to be very deliberate about doing that. It's easy to strengthen your gastrocs. Hmm. Uh the soleus requires more effort.
0: I learned this intimately during my during rehabilitation. Absolutely. Yeah. I overshot it, actually. It was hilarious. So um I- There's not a good time to snap an Achilles, but during COVID wasn't bad. Um, And I overshot it on my right leg, which was the one that snapped. And I ended up having to then work on my left more aggressively to catch it up because I'd ended up building up a, a calf that was bigger. I mean... I learned so much, man, from that. Uh, the first thing was I had a 13-day wait period because I was doing it on the NHS, although I managed to find uh, one of the top three surgeons in the entirety of the UK through a friend uh, who was on the NHS to come and do my reattachment, which was really, really great. It felt like being um, fitted in at the end of the day with a barber that needs to do the haircut. And I was waiting around all day, all day, all day, and then it got to the very end, and we he had to run it back, and I had to go back tomorrow. i have been fasted all day because I was going to go into general anesthetic, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um. A bunch of the things that I learned from that coming out the other side were how important it is to be able to deal with not just strength, but plyo, uh, especially for uh, that ankle position. But what I'm thinking here, when when you're talking about your um, challenges with box step-ups, there's a guy called Dr. Eddie Joe, PhD on Instagram. Now, he took a massive hiatus for like three years, but he did these really great breakdowns of academic literature in infographics, which lend themselves to Instagram very nicely. And I'll never forget this one from nearly four years ago, I think. And there'd been a study done looking at muscle fiber recruitment for glute exercises. Mm. And, you know, you look at uh, the glute factory bum lab things for girls that want big glutes or me that's increasingly realized that my back gets better the bigger that my bum gets. Um, and glute bridge, donkey kickback, side raises, all manner of fantastical exercises that that girls do and he ranked them by uh the amount of muscle fiber recruitment and the top five exercises were step ups or step up variations it's like mm. step up cross body step up mm. like lateral step up something 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 and then maybe hex hex bar deadlift was in the sort of upper middle uh deadlift another one and then you get down toward like glute bridge kickback and it's a 25 and I think it's 95 on this particular scale or this number hmm. with step up so for anybody that wants to improve like lower body power I just I, I absolutely adore that movement uh, and it's so easy to do
1: we, we um you know in the first iteration of writing the book I had intended to put so much detail in about instruction on like kind of the most important movements in the end it was getting too long so what I did is I ended up creating videos for a handful of them and one of them is the step up so there's a pretty good video um, on the, like the book will point people to where to go on our site to see it. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's a, it's a, I just watched it yesterday. It's a pretty good instructional video. Is it uh, you doing it? It's me doing it with Beth and I talking through how to do a step up. Cool. Uh, weighted, unweighted, low box, high box, the whole thing. Eccentric, concentric. What are the pitfalls? How do you, you know, how do you unload the ribs to, you know, you know, do the movement correctly and all that stuff. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, going back to some of the other, uh, we'd spoken about sweeteners.
0: What about vaping? If you had a look at any of the science around vaping, it's kind of a little bit of a moral panic at the moment if you look at certain areas of the ancestral paleo
1: world on the internet. Uh, What's your thoughts on vaping and its potential dangers? Let's come back to kind of the risk-reward matrix, right? So again, I, I view everything through this two by two. So what's the risk? Is it closer to getting hit by a tricycle or getting hit by a train? And what's the reward? Is it picking up a dollar or is it picking up a gold coin? So I think that the I don't think we have sufficient data to say that it's picking up that it's getting hit by a tricycle um, I don't think the industry is standardized enough to be sure that what is being inhaled is sufficiently clean maybe it is maybe some companies are better than others I mean we, we could talk about that all day long but I'm not personally willing to put my trust in that in that market in that infrastructure in those companies whatsoever. Um, so so for me personally, this would be a no-brainer. There's no upside in it to me. What would you be concerned about going into your body? It's not just the nicotine, it's the stuff. Oh, no. Well, first of all, nicotine I love. Like, I'm all about nicotine.
0: How do you use nicotine in a safe way?
1: Um, I would chew gum or I would use, I use a, like a lozenge or I chew, um, there's like these little patches that you, you know, kind the of suck on. Zin pouch. What have okay. you found is your favorite brand for those? Um... I'm blanking on the name of the brand. Um, they come in a little round, colorful thing. I don't remember the name of the brand. Got you. And you using three MIGs, five MIGs? Um, unfortunately, that's the, maybe I haven't bought in a while from these guys. I bought so many the first time by accident that I'm still living off the last two years worth. I literally just, like an idiot, accidentally bought 10 times more than I am Like meant. a prepper. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, they only come in sevens. Which There's is a no way, dude. I would no, yeah, you can't do it all at once. That I, would be
0: in my mouth for 30 seconds, and then I would have to take it. Yeah,
1: out. yeah. So I go in, out, in, yep, out, in, yep, out, and yep. out. Um, I think they have a four as well, Got which you. is a little bit more manageable. Yeah. But is truthfully, it, like, I think two milligrams is sort of the right dose. One to two milligrams is probably the sweet spot,
0: and then you don't need to dick about taking it in and out. Yeah, well.
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so no, to be clear, like the, the, the nicotine is not the problem, yep. right? Uh, it's the, it's w- just like with cigarettes, nicotine is not the problem with cigarettes. Yes. There's an addictive component to it. The problem is the toxicity of the vehicle that's delivering the nicotine in the form of tobacco. Well, with vaping. I don't have any sense of what's happening when you have a heated metal filament that is burning combustible products, some of which I may or may not be inhaling through a filter. Like What I'm saying is not that I know there's something wrong with this, but I'm saying I have no confidence in that industry to regulate itself or our regulatory agency to regulate them. And therefore, because I don't know where it is on the risk parameter, but I definitely don't feel comfortable saying it's getting hit by a tricycle. It could be getting hit by, you know, a small car. It could be getting hit by a train for all I know. We, you know, it's just an unknown. And then, you know, how would I justify it? Well, unless I felt that the reward matrix was picking up gold coins, it just doesn't justify it to me. So is that a moral panic? I don't think so. I think it's just saying like, what's the risk reward trade-off for it? Justified skepticism, perhaps. Uh, Another revolution that's going
0: on at the moment, which I've been at the sort of front row seat of has been alcohol and a reduction in the consumption of alcohol. I think people realizing uh, it's no surprise that it's a, a really dangerous risk, but people who considered that one drink was okay, that two glasses of wine, because there's some resveratrol coming from the red grapes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was a club promoter for a very long time. Uh, so I was in the trenches partying hard for all of my twenties, which is why your uh, 90th to 100th year estimation I think is uh, unfortunately going to be a little bit too generous. But I went sober for six months, really loved it. Um, most to do with the lifestyle changes, cognitive yeah. uh, cognitive improvements, uh, what it meant in terms of habit, in terms of consistency, energy, uh, money, time, all that stuff. Came back to drinking, didn't like it. Went back to sober for another six months. Came back to drinking for a couple of months, didn't like it, did a thousand days sober. Uh, I never had a, a an issue with substances. But just really loved what it had done for me. And, you know, five years hence, six years hence now, the low and no movement seems to be really, really gaining speed. Is that so? Why is it so surprising? Like why is it that something that ostensibly obviously wasn't that good for us is now only just beginning to kind of get some momentum of people thinking, oh, maybe this thing that makes me feel like a total pile of dog shit the next day is something that I shouldn't take
1: all the time. I don't know. I can't speak to it. The only thing I could speculate is that with the, uh, with the rise of sleep trackers, I think you really have some objective data on the downside it's of alcohol. Terrifying. And I don't, uh, I don't think anybody who's worn a whoop who doesn't look at their heart rate variability pre and post alcohol consumption or the fragmentation of their sleep is not saying what the hell. It's insane. Why is it such an impact? For the for the unindoctrinated amongst us,
0: let's say that you've got a heart rate variability of 70. If you were to have two glasses of beer or two small glasses of wine on an evening, finishing at 9 or 10 p.m. and then go to sleep on the night, it wouldn't surprise me if from 70 your heart rate variability is down in the 30s yeah. or the 40s. What is happening inside of the body that's causing that to happen?
1: So alcohol is metabolized um, into different elements, but but one of the metabolic byproducts of alcohol is quite toxic. And um, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect what's happening is the toxicity of that is changing the autonomic nervous system. So in what you what you want to be doing when you're sleeping is in a maximally parasympathetic state, um, that the so-called rest and digest state. And that's really what heart rate variability is measuring, right? Heart rate variability, along with other things such as heart rate itself and temperature, respiratory rate, are proxies for your autonomic nervous system. And anytime those things move in the wrong direction, so heart rate goes up, heart rate variability goes down, respiratory rate goes up, temperature goes up, all of those things happen when you drink that to me is a very strong signal that something about the toxicity of the metabolic byproduct of ethanol is putting the body into more of a fight or flight response as opposed to a rest and digest response. It's so
0: hilarious that the thing that a lot of people use and has been used for a long time, I can't get to sleep, I'll have a glass of whiskey, uh, isn't really aiding with sleep, it's just sedating people.
1: Yeah, that's the insidious thing about it, right, is people confuse sedation, consciousness, and sleep. And I, I, you know, I'd love to tell the glib anecdote, right? Which is like, if I hit you over the head with a baseball bat, you would lie motionless for 12 hours. But of course, there's no confusion over the fact that you are not sleeping and nothing about that experience is good for your brain or your body in terms of rest and recovery. So yes, alcohol is very sedating, but it doesn't promote sleep in the way that we know sleep works in terms of its stages and its functionality in terms of healing. Let's
0: say that no one has looked at Alzheimer's or neurodegenerative disease. What do we need to
1: know? I mean, the first thing I think everybody needs to know, uh, you're talking about from a personal risk standpoint or just understanding the disease? Personal risk. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing I, I, you know, we want to know from all of our patients is tell us your family history. Right. That you know There is a genetic component to this disease. So let's understand what your susceptibility is. Um, Would you ask them that ahead
0: of just saying, go and get a, a genetic test done?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause the, the, I think the family history is more telling than the genetic test.
0: Wow.
1: Okay. Because remember the genetic test we look at is we look at the most common gene, which is the gene that's easiest to test for, which is APOE. There are a dozen other genes that we look at, but they're much harder to sift for. There aren't really great commercial tests for them.
0: And so- God knows if there's something lurking that isn't part of this current paradigm of what we understand exactly did it show up yeah if it showed up
1: yeah so so right out of the gate we want to know is is um is dementia in your family if so what type do we think it is so do we think it's alzheimer's dementia do we think it's vascular dementia do we think it's frontotemporal lobe dementia do we think it's lewy body dementia is there parkinson's disease when you think about just comparing Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Those are three types of neurodegenerative diseases that are on a spectrum where Alzheimer's is the, is the most cognitively destructive. Parkinson's is the most movement, movement destructive. Lewy body is taking bits of both of their playbook, right? So Lewy body is destructive to both movement and cognition. Well, we want to understand exactly what pattern you may or may not be a part of. We also want to understand age of onset. So, um, tragically there, there's a, uh, fortunately, very very rare, but um, you know, still unfortunately um, prevalent form of early onset Alzheimer's disease. These are people who are afflicted in their forties and fifties. Is that what Chris Hemsworth got? No,
0: no. But he got. Uh, he realized something during that. Disney yeah, Chris. Thing, Chris right?
1: learned that he has two copies of the ApoE four gene, and the ApoE four gene is the most common genetic. Uh, you know the most common gene responsible for Alzheimer's disease, but not. But it's as not as early. It's not early onset. Right. Okay. It's a late onset predisposition. Okay. The early onset ones are um, called APP, PSEN1, PSEN2. Um, so again, those can be tested for. We don't normally test for those because it's normally so apparent from family history. Ah, uh, of course. Now, yes. if we document that, we would of course test for. Uh, tragically, I think that's a variant of Alzheimer's disease that is. Um, I think it's less clear how much you can prevent Lifestyle-independent, basically. Right. Whereas the one that Chris has and that 25% of the population has, if they have one copy of that gene, that's highly amenable to prevention, which really gets to why we want to know this stuff. Um, you want to know this stuff because one, sometimes that's the motivation people need to take this seriously when they're thirty five years old and young and indestructible because that's the time you want to actually act. Uh, and secondly, there are certain things that we know are even more important to people with that genotype. So it would factor into what medications we might use to lower cholesterol. It might factor into how much, omega-3 EPA and DHA we would want them to take. It might factor into other choices we might make around nutrition. And even in people who are exercise time limited, it might factor into how we prescribe exercise.
0: What are the biggest prophylactics against mental degradation over time?
1: So I recently did a podcast on this. Um, It's an AMA on my podcast that is 100% devoted to all interventions that improve cognition and delay the onset of dementia and i sort of broke it down into here are the things for which there is no ambiguity about the benefit so enormous signal i'm not going to talk much about them because it's i'll i'll give you you know the basics on it and then i spent the entire podcast talking about the gray stuff where there's probably a benefit but it's harder to quantify so you're asking what are those things that i didn't really talk about it's basically exercise um uh, lipid management, not having type two diabetes, and probably sleep, having adequate sleep. Those are those are the no regret moves that that have enormous impact, uh, and it's probably in that order.
0: So it seems like looking at what we've spoken about so far today, and you mentioned it earlier on. You thought um, diet was this unbelievably huge lever it seems now that exercise is one of the longest, if not maybe the longest. I
1: think it is.
0: That you're talking about. I think it is, yeah.
1: I think the data, certainly the data would suggest that, right? So in other words, you go back to, so a hazard ratio is a very, uh, it's an important tool in statistics to understand the relative risk or benefit of any intervention. So a hazard ratio of one means that this intervention has no benefit and no harm. A hazard ratio of 1.5 means means this intervention is 50% riskier than the baseline. A hazard ratio of 0.75 means this intervention is 25% less risky, right? Okay, so um, when you just go off those numbers, what's the, what's the hazard ratio of smoking? Well, it depends on the study, but it's about 1.4. So what that means is, and that's for all cause mortality. So that means that if you're, if you compare a smoker to a non-smoker, all things equal at any point in time, that smoker is 40% more likely to die in a given year than the non-smoker. It's devastating, right? If you look at hypertension, it's about 1.2, 1.21. So having high blood pressure means you're about 20 to 21% more likely to die in a given year than someone who's identical to you in every way, except they don't have high blood pressure. If you look at somebody with, you know, atherosclerosis, so advanced cardiovascular disease, it's about 1.25. If you look at somebody with end-stage kidney disease, so someone who's on dialysis, it's like 2.75. That means they're 175% more likely to die in a given year than someone who's not in end-stage renal disease. So Now start comparing all of these other interventions I'm talking about. Well, let's go back to the VO2 max. If you take somebody who's in the bottom 25% of fitness, which by definition, 25% of the population are, and you compare them to somebody who's in the top 2% for their age, it's a five, the hazard ratio is five. So that means it's 400% difference in mortality. If I take somebody who is in the bottom quartile of strength and compare them to the top quartile of strength it's about 3 as a hazard ratio so when you go through these metrics of exercising or muscle mass or strength or cardiorespiratory fitness it just dwarfs everything else including diabetes including smoking so and again this isn't a zero sum game like the goal is get as many things on your side as possible be of normal weight don't have diabetes, be sleeping well, don't smoke, but be strong as hell. Have a high VO2 max. I mean, you want you want to stack the odds as much in your favor as possible. There's no guarantee in life, and this there's still an enormous, stochastic, random bad luck component to life. I could walk out of here and get hit by a car, um, but I'd like to control what I can control. Heart disease
0: is the biggest killer on the planet at the moment? Bar none.
1: Why are our hearts so fragile? I mean, actually, I would argue they're not, right? If you consider what your heart is doing, right? You know, It's like this amazing organ that is beating nonstop without any instruction from you consciously um, and has this remarkable capacity to respond to your autonomic nervous system on demand, right? someone runs through this door and startles us our heart rates are going to skyrocket instantly we don't even need to tell it something bad is happening right i you know you you go to you know get stem cells at elevation your heart rate knows to get jacked uh, so 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 this this thing is in a remarkable muscle um but it has um it has a narrow blood supply you know so um and it doesn't have a remarkable capacity to revascularize itself. That's probably its biggest drawback. You know, other muscles in our body, uh, have a much easier time undergoing angiogenesis. So if, you know, if you suffered kind of, um, you know, an occlusion of a of a blood vessel, a small blood vessel in, in your leg, it wouldn't cause as much trouble uh, because you'd have kind of an easier time creating collateral flow around it. But in the heart, that's 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 less the case. And of course the stakes are much higher. You probably wouldn't notice it if a, you know, a silver dollar sized patch of your quad stopped working. It wouldn't wreak as much havoc as if an equal size patch of your left ventricle stopped working. Um so the problem is that evolution didn't really care about atherosclerosis. That's, that's really the problem, right? So atherosclerosis is driven by factors that evolution wasn't at all caring about because they didn't interfere with reproductive fitness. So smoking, high blood pressure, and high ApoB are the main drivers of atherosclerosis, And none of those things were on evolution's radar. In fact, you could argue um, high ApoB for a period of our human history would have been beneficial. ApoB being the lipoprotein that wraps around LDL and VLDL would have played an important role in a scarce nutrient environment, which we were in up until a few hundred years ago. And today, of course, it creates a problem, right? Today, those ApoB particles, those LDL particles are carrying cholesterol into our artery walls and our immune system, which by the way is doing the best job it can, like the little train that could, is treating that as though it's a foreign invader and mounting an enormous immune response. And it's that immune response that's actually leading to the creation of plaque that ultimately results in a heart attack. So when it comes to heart disease, it seems like there's two
0: broad elements here. One would be restricting the things which cause risk And the other would be improving yourself from baseline. What are the uh, big buckets in either of those? You've mentioned smoking.
1: Smoking, blood pressure, and ApoB. So if you just took those three things off the table, it's, it's very hard to imagine how you can get atherosclerosis. So if you don't smoke, if you maintain a blood pressure at or below 120 over 80, and if your ApoB is maintained at the physiologic level that kids have, you can't get atherosclerosis.
0: How does someone know about their ApoB? Simple blood test. Cost about 12 bucks. Okay. And how often do you need to get that done?
1: Uh, I mean, I probably check mine three or four times a year. I probably check mine three times a year. Um, Yeah. And if it came back and said this is high? Then you would try to ask the question, why is it high? How much of this is going to be fixable by diet? How much of this is going to be fixable pharmacologically? Truthfully, to get to the levels that are necessary to eradicate atherosclerosis for most people does require pharmacologic intervention. This is probably, in, in my opinion, if antibiotics represent... The biggest win of medicine 2.0, uh, anti-lipid therapy would be the second biggest win.
0: Okay. That's stopping the bad. Yep. Improving the good for the heart.
1: Yeah. So again, exercise, not surprising, um, and it's probably more so the benefit on cardio here, You you're probably going to see more of a, the data would certainly suggest that cardio is the more important exercise of the two. But again, I always caution people. You're not just feeding your heart. You got to worry about your brain. You got to worry about your body. So we're never going to get into the, to a cardio or strength paradigm. It's and it's always going to be and. but just to be clear, the cardio training probably has a better impact on the heart. Um, sleep. So, uh, you know, poor sleep has devastating impact on the heart, probably through sympathetic overtone, uh, hypercortisolemia, things like that. So stress becomes another thing that really matters. It's kind of it's, again, it's one of these sort of fuzzy terms that kind of seems like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah stress. I'm sure, but but I, I think the data are very clear that high levels of cortisol um, are are really damaging to coronary arteries. Um, and then again, nutrition kind of factors in probably to. The pharmacologic strategy. So there's no question that, um, for, you know, if you're, if you were saying, what would be the most draconian nutrition step I could take to minimize my lipids? Um, you could take that step, but you're probably creating three other problems in its wake. Mm. Right. So if you went on like a 10% fat diet, you would probably drop your lipid levels to, you know, very healthy levels. The problem is what other problems would you create? How do your hormones look? Yeah. How do your hormones look? How does your muscle mass? All these other things. And so- What you call of life like, only having 10%
0: fat in your diet.
1: Right. So the way I think about it is when I can use, so so if I can use pharmacology to solve a problem without creating another problem, that's a far better use case than using nutrition to solve a problem that creates a whole bunch of other problems.
0: Because you can be more targeted. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. That's interesting. What about motivation? Like, what do you think about motivation? Cause we're, we're talking here about all of these things that we could do and should do and potentially need to do, but there's are the competing goals that people have got as well in here. What have you found given the, you know, overwhelming number of things that you get exposed to, brilliant. it'd be good if I added this into my routine, you could get to the stage where there is no life left in your life. Yeah. How do you map your intervention threshold uh, and then try to stay uh, adhering and compliant given all of the stuff that there is to do?
1: Well, I mean, I think everything has a season, right? So there's been periods of my life when I've been far more disciplined and far more regimented than others. And um, again, I I kind of always want to remind myself that I never want to be in the situation where everything is off the rails. So if I'm really feeling stretched thin, if I'm really feeling like I can't do it all, then I have to start prioritizing. Then I have to start, you know, if you're on a lifeboat and you can only take so many things, this is where it really matters that you think about what you need. And so if, um, you know, if, if if, for example, when I was, you know, finishing the book and under, uh, you know, unusual amounts of stress based on, the demands of the book, the demands of my practice, the demands of the podcast, all these other things. I just made a very clear unilateral decision. Like there's certain things I'm not going to care about. And one of them is going to be eating. Like I'm going to indulge and kind of eat whatever the hell I want to eat, but I'm not going to compromise sleep or exercise Mm. because I know that those two things factor far more into my productivity, my cognitive capacity and my mood truthfully. And yeah, in an ideal world, I would be firing on those cylinders plus eating perfectly. But I was like, look, sometimes I will, sometimes I won't. And if my assistant manages to be able to get me a great salad for lunch today, that's awesome. But if she can't and I feel, and I'm starving and I just want to go and have a bowl of cereal, so be it. I'm just going to have a bowl of cereal. Like I'm not going to beat myself up over this or let it bleed into some other areas. And of course, you know, I hope that that's not something that I endures forever. Um, and of course, you know, it doesn't. You know, you, you just have to remember that um, you got to remember why you're doing this, right? So I think, if, I don't know that motivation is the right word. I think it's sort of purpose that, that matters. Um, I, I don't really know what motivation means. I, I, I At least for me personally, I, I'm sure for some people that word has meaning. For, for me, kind of purpose is the thing that matters.
0: A more accurate word for me to have used would have probably been something like consistency over a long period of time. Yeah, for this, because we're looking at longevity by definition up until the end of life. Yeah. You asked, you began this conversation asking what do I want to look like when I'm am I still having sex when I'm 90? Um which means that you're making decisions in the now which are very different to if you only have a five-year or a ten-year or even a twenty-year timeline to what you do. You know, your training protocol, which the risk to reward, it may be fun to do this particular training style. It may be yep. but what's the injury risk? And what would the downstream costs of that be in 30, 40, 50 years
1: time. Um so we're talking- I I don't have great advice for how to get somebody there. I mean, I just know that I've crossed that threshold um, probably in the last five years. And I'm I'm really happy about it. I, I I really it's 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 actually created a much greater sense of calm in my life. Mm. Um Is it less hurried in a way. So sort of less Yeah and also just um less less harsh. You know, it used to be that every day I used to say this every day you have to burn at least one match. And a a match for me being burned was a physical exertion to the point of wanting to puke. I had to do that at least once every single day. There was no workout seven days a week that didn't at least produce that once. Um, so even like if I was out on a recovery ride, I would still have to close the ride. There was a, I used to live at the top of a hill and it was a one kilometer hill and it would always be a one kilometer sprint to the death where I was always trying to hit a PR. Um, or every, if I went into the weight room and the goal today was to deadlift, it was like always going to try to PR. And I mean, I am so far from that mentality today that it's, it gives, it sometimes, you know, like I'll go in and I just don't feel right during the warmup. Like it just doesn't feel good. And I'll say, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to abort the deadlift today. I'm going to go and do some safer exercises where the stakes are a lot lower. And if I make a mistake, I'm not going to get punished for it the way I'm going to punished if I'm doing deadlifts and I, you know, don't have my form just right. Um. And so, yeah, you've got to be able to play the long game, I think. And I, I don't know what to tell somebody to get them there other than anchoring them to the marginal decade. Because if you know what you're training for, then of course you wouldn't take that risk, right? Like, and and honestly, I think what we have an epidemic of is people who don't know what they're training for. Like, or, you know, if you really stop them and ask them, like, are you doing this because you want to look good on the beach? Are you doing this because you want bragging rights? Are you doing this so the other guys at the gym look at you? Like, it's okay to say that the answer to those questions is yes, but at least be deliberate about what you're doing and why. Because if you are doing this to look good on the beach or to have bragging rights, then you might have to compromise some of your long-term goals. But at some point, you got to decide like what matters the most. What sacrifices
0: did you need to make whilst writing this book? It's been a very long labor, as far as I'm aware. There was a draft... At some point that essentially just got totally burned two two drafts and it's not a small book i mean it's like a it's a it's a a big boy um what did you have to sacrifice as someone that likes to get things right like to optimize what did you have to sacrifice in order to
1: well i mean i think I, I had to learn to compromise a little bit truthfully um you know i had a co-author i have an editor and i think i had to learn that sometimes they would have a point of view that was different from my point of view. And I had to make concessions. And I actually think that in the end, those concessions were valuable. Um, So one of the biggest conflicts early in the writing process. um, So so I wrote the first version by myself and nobody liked it. Right. So everybody was like, this is way too technical Mm. and there's no story. There's no story. It's just, a textbook. technical treatise on longevity. Um, and I was, I really rejected their suggestion that this book needed to have part of me in it. I was like, that's going to be, that is going to have no credibility. It's just going to read like, you know, pop fiction, garbage, like blah, 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 blah. Well, when I look at where that book is now, I realize, no, it had to have part of me in it. This is partly my story. And... The story of my patients, and it's the, it's it's basically a very technical book that is weaved together between the stories of people, and you know, there's a saying, right? Like, never make a point without telling a story, never tell a story without making a point. I, you know, this is something I really, really rejected in 2016, 2017, in the first iteration of that book. Um, there are countless other examples of things where I was adamant that it needed to be done a certain way. And luckily people around me who are smarter than me said, no, I don't think that's the way to do it. I think, I think we need to cut this down a lot. And that's a hard thing to do when you're writing, when you're writing, you know, there's this sort of thing that's called, you lean to learn to kill your babies. And that's a really hard thing to do. Like I had, there were chapters of that book that were literally twice as long and I thought they were really good. And I left on the cutting room floor. They're gone. Um, And they're better now, shorter. It's okay that I didn't say everything that needed to be said.
0: A bunch of things that we haven't spoken about so far today are heat, cold, sunlight, grounding, meditation, rejuvenative practices, social connection. How do you map these on to the discussion about longevity. I recently read a book by Robin Dunbar, uh, Friends... Uh, sorry, uh, The Social Brain, his new one. Uh, and in it, he says, one of the biggest discoveries that we've seen over the last decade has been the unbelievable power on health and longevity outcomes that having a social group has with us. Where do you fit all of this stuff in the heat, the cold, the sunlight, the grounding, the friends?
1: How does all of that... I mean, go? I put them in sort of different buckets, but but I would agree with that, right? I mean, I, I think that... I mean we are evolutionarily so wired to be social creatures and that doesn't like, I'm an introvert, but which means like I don't like really being around that many people. And I certainly don't like being around strangers. Um, But I would die if I was alone. So, you know, people who are introverts don't necessarily aren't immune from this either. Um, and, And by the way, I love playing thought experiments, right? So, so, you know, one of the thought experiments I would play with myself when I was sort of wrestling with this was if you could have everything you wanted, you could achieve everything, right? You could be the most physically fit. You could have the most knowledge. You could have the most cars and race cars and race tracks and blah, 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 blah. But you live alone in this planet. All of your needs are met by robots that do everything else, right? So the the robots are you know, pulling the oil out of the ground to make the gasoline for your race cars and they're building it and they're farming your food or whatever, whatever it is like. But you're alone. Like, think about that existence, right? Like you can't fathom an existence alone, regardless of how good everything else is in your life. In fact, that would be the closest thing to hell that I think I could ever imagine. So we certainly know at the extreme end of the spectrum that loneliness is an enormous predisposing factor for suicide right so suicide is just the most extreme form of emotional death um but I, I think there are a lot of people who never get close to suicide but who then enter kind of the second orbit around suicide which we would call parasuicide so engaging in behaviors that are ultimately reckless enough that they cost you your their life i mean you would argue that smoking is parasuicide excessive drinking is parasuicide Using dangerous illicit drugs that unfortunately nowadays are so often laced with fentanyl is parasuicide.
0: Is driving a strip back three series with a V six engine and roll cage parasuicide?
1: I don't think so. I think it's I think driving to the racetrack to do those things right, is okay. basically parasuicide. No. I it's so funny. I actually brought my daughter to the racetrack for the first time two weeks ago. Cota? Uh no, I went to Harris Hill. So um, I would love to bring her to Koda. I, I wanted to start her at Harris Hill. It's a smaller track. You don't get nearly as fast. And she was so reluctant for like a year to come. How old is she? She's 14. Okay. And I was like, she's like, well, how, what happens if we hit something? And I was like, well, Olivia, the way they design racetracks, it's like, it's anticipated that you're going to lose control of the car sometimes. So everything is designed to minimize that. Plus the cars are incredibly safe. So anyway, she finally came. I have a GoPro on the dash filming us driving it is hilarious to watch her head like moving around and stuff because the uh, you know, she's wearing You know what a Hans is. Yeah. Yeah. So the the belts came off her Hans. I don't think my coach strapped her in tight enough. And so pretty soon she's like, you know, she's still strapped in there, but she's not like I am. Like when I'm in there, like my Hans is like um, and I showed the video to one of my buddies. He goes she looks like one of those monkeys they used to put on rocket ships. Like, just like you just see a big helmet head like bobbling around. It's hilarious. But anyway, um, no, I, I would I would not describe that as parasuicide. I would describe that as, nor, nor would I describe skiing or other sort of risky sports. I just think you have to decide where they are within your risk behavior. Um, but then you go even beyond that. And I think there's, you know, behaviors that that aren't going to kill you, but they're just going to make your life so miserable, right? Like having horrible relationships with people, um, that degrades the quality of your life. And while I do think that that does shorten your life ultimately, right? I do think that there are biochemical ways that that impact probably through stress hormones, probably through you know, greater activation of sympathetic, you know, an imbalance between sympathetic and parasympathetic flow. I think those things absolutely do impact our immune function, our cardiovascular function, all these things. Um, even if they didn't,
0: what's the point? We just think about the enjoyment of life.
1: Yeah.
0: We can break things down into an objective list of metrics and how does it impact the things that we can measure that are going on. But what's your felt sense? of
1: like Yeah. So go back to what you said in your marginal decade. And I think most people, when you ask them about their marginal decade, none of it's in isolation. It's, you said, picking up grandkids, being able to walk your dog, which is a companion, being able to have conversations with other people. That's the cognitive piece. So I think when most people really think about this, they can't escape the fact that their quality of life is inextricably linked to interaction with other people
0: we haven't spoken about emotional health as an individual at the moment um it might surprise people to think about when you have the discussion about longevity you're talking time on the planet bone density muscle mass cardiovascular risk etc etc what about emotional health how should people even frame that in the discussion that we're
1: having I, i think it has to be top I think it's right it's right there with those other things. I, I don't think it's um I don't think it's something that should be thought of as an afterthought. It's uh it matters just as much. Um, again, it, you know, long life with, you know, poor emotional health is is probably a curse.
0: What rejuvenative practices do you find best? You know, we 10 12 14 hours a week of Sometimes punishing, sometimes sub-punishing
1: workouts. And. Yeah, usually sub-punishing, right? So call it 12 to 14 hours a week of exercise is very important for me. Um, I do sauna four days a week. To, I try to do four days a week. Um, Session length? Uh, minimum 30, so so 30 to 60. At? Uh, 196 to 200. Are you taking a break? With those, you must be. There's no um, way you can go straight through on that. I, I can. I usually will go 30 and then a quick break. Though, so. sixty at two hundred would be. Uh I've never done sixty at two hundred. I've done sixty intense. at like one ninety four. It's wow. hard. Okay, right. So four times a week. Yeah, four to five times a week. And by the way, that's doubly regenerative for me, or rejuvenative, depending on because like I'm again, I never do that alone, right? Yeah. So I'm going to do that with a friend. I'm going to yeah. do that with my wife, yeah. and it's always just an awesome time to be. Like last night, talking about talk, you know my whole my wife and I spent the whole time talking about you know, a session she had with her therapist and how, you know, how much she learned. And it was just so wonderful to have kind Stacking of- Stacking yeah, multiple it's things a, on it's top. It's, it's, just, it's just being able to do multiple things at once that okay. are both um, really beneficial. Um, I like rucking. That's something we didn't really talk about. I don't really lump that into my exercise bucket of time, though It is um, it is obviously a great type of exercise. But because of the way that I'm doing it, which is I'm not taking any electronics with me and I'm not multitasking when I do it, it really is just as much about my brain as it is my body. So rucking, of course, just for folks who don't know, it's basically walking around with a very heavy backpack. So, you know, sweet spot is about a third of your body weight. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'll go and do about three, three, three and a half miles with as many hills as I can find. And, not, I'm not taking anything. Like I don't, I'm don't. i not listening to podcasts or books or anything. I don't have my phone with me. So it's really just uh, something that's unusual for me. Because usually I'm either working or if I'm exercising in the gym, I'm listening to music. If I'm on my bike. There's always multiple stimulus going on. Yeah, I'm listening to a podcast or something like yeah. that. But here it's truly just observing thoughts. What's your divisive choice for rocking? Go Rock. Yes, absolutely. Love uh, those guys.
0: Is that... Do they do anything that isn't because they do the thing that's like a big penis coming out of your back where you can literally plate load it, right? I'm gonna guess you use a more I have a
1: pack. So there's a there's a there's an actual pack that has pockets in it to you drop the plates in it. Cool.
0: And you've got what, f-
1: like sixty pounds, 70 yep. pounds in there? Something? Sixty and I have several packs. So I have one, my wife has one, we have one for anytime friends come over and I've just got like we've got tons of weight, so away we go. Away we go, yeah. So it's like I like to do rucking rucking meetings with friends okay yeah cool so sauna rucking sauna cold you have a cold plunge love that as well what are Um, you aiming to hit per week that um again it depends uh probably also about four times a week um and again that's something i like doing with my wife even though she's tiny she can she can actually take the cold almost Mm -hmm. as much as i can i have a lot more insulation than she does Worse for conversation than a sauna, perhaps. Yeah, not as much. The, it, usually the conversation there is how much longer. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. okay.
1: Um, and and then truthfully, I think the most sort of rejuvenating practice is playing. Like I, I'm really lucky because I have, my daughter doesn't like to play as much, but we still play. Like we, you know, we play volleyball. She loves volleyball. So anytime I can be out on the court with her playing volleyball, I'm teaching her how to drive stick. So that's something that she loves doing. She'll be like, dad, can we go and drive? And it's like, yep. Get in the pickup truck, go to the parking lot and, you know, making her start on steep hills and stuff like that is awesome. Uh, And my boys are eight and five. And so all they do is play. And so I get to play every single day.
0: You're down on the ground.
1: You're probably in grass. Playing Lego, jumping on a trampoline, goofing off. I like doing Lego myself. That's another super that's a super enjoyable thing for me to do what is your i saw did
0: you post something saying that shares of lego had increased by 25 percent at some point and your wife had accused you of
1: being single-handedly responsible contributing to it you moved the lego market yeah yeah yeah
0: wow um i got sent by a very good friend tim bishop from australia uh a Colosseum lego set
1: yeah that's one of the three biggest lego sets
0: yeah so he sent me this. Uh, with, Actually, one of the
1: four. So the, yeah. Uh, look, tell me, what's the first biggest? The first biggest, I think, sucks. It's the world map. Lame. It's so lame. Right. Second, yeah. third? Uh, second is the Eiffel Tower. Less The lame. new Eiffel Tower. There was an old one. Right, okay. The new one is really cool. Have you done that one? Uh, we have not. My boys want it. Okay. My boys are just finishing the Titanic, which is the third largest, and the Colosseum is the fourth. Right, okay. And I, it's funny, my boys, we, I was putting them to bed last night and we were playing the rank order game. Uh-huh. Which one would you want? And I, I said that I think, the, I think the coolest is the Titanic followed by the Coliseum.
0: Okay, well, I've got that. Have um, you done it yet? No, I haven't even opened it up. Um, Tim sent it to me with the a, a letter about uh the man on the stadium floor. Is it yeah, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, the Teddy
1: Roosevelt quote. Yeah, uh,
0: which was very meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And he shipped a thing from Australia. Or maybe he hasn't. You know, he must have
1: done because it had the note in it. God, yeah, so he shipped it across yeah, the planet you, you should do it I, I mean i find that i i love doing lego i do the my favorite of the technic cars so i have all of them okay um do you do involved. this
0: i'm gonna get because one of the other things that i, I had kelly star on the show yesterday no monday this week and there's this big movement at the moment for being on the ground yeah spending as much time hips below knees as possible do you consider
1: that as well are you legoing no i i do lego on a table because uh-huh. like it's so complicated like uh-huh. i have I have multiple plates laid out with all the different pieces and stuff Your like
0: workstation that. needs to be optimized. Yes, I can absolutely. tell that you're surgical with your Lego yeah, yeah, yeah. creation.
1: Um, but my, I, you play on the floor with kids because kids play on the floor. Understood. Yeah. And have that's you, also something that factors into how you think about this last decade of your life, which is if you want to play with grandkids,
0: like to be able to get down to the you ground have get to up. get
1: to their level. Yeah. And that's why, by the way, I think the step-up is an amazing exercise. The step-up is the movement that tells you you can get up off the floor
0: hmm tell you one thing i haven't brought it up yet today i've been playing around with a vitruvian at home which is kind of like a tonal it's like magnetic drive mm. training thing and they, they they sent me one two or three months ago dude this thing's so much fucking fun it's so cool um, so you can imagine a like a stepper, like one of those Reebok things that yeah, yeah. ladies in aerobic class would use. A little bit bigger than that, flat on the ground, magnetic drive, two cables that come out of it, two nylon cables, tons of attachments that go in. You can belt squat by uh, slotting something between the two. There can be a long bar that goes between the two. you can Use a, all all these different bits. There's a bench as well, and the bench has got one uh, leg is shorter than the other, yep. so it can go flat or you can flip it and then it's an incline. Um, it's so much, fun.
1: but is it working? Is it? It's magnetic.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you can have time and attention. Yep. Uh, if you start to fail on a rep, it'll it'll dial the weight back, and then as you get to the top, it'll turn it back on. Yeah. So it can do eccentric only training. Yep, yep. And it goes up to 440 pounds of of weight. Uh, and doing step ups with that, or doing uh, my favorite movement with that is a front foot elevated split squat. Yep. So putting up onto that handles in either hand. It's so much fucking fun, and it feels so. How much room does it take up? Not just literally, just this, the size of a, like the Reebok step. thing? Yeah, that's it. And there's no more room that you. How need. much are they? Three grand, and uh, three, three, three and a half. And if you get like the looks suite of additional things, the nicer handles, the belt squat et cetera, you're probably looking at all in, including shipping, probably like I don't know, three and a half, something like that. They're not a sponsor on the show, but they sent me this thing, and if you had a thousand square foot, 500 square foot apartment in New York. You could slide it, it's got little wheels on it, put it up against a wall, it would take up no room and dude, this thing fucking crushes you. It absolutely destroys you. Um, and there's the app as well that they've done. There's something else that I thought was really cool. You can do not only individual workouts where there's a video and the person does it and it tells the machine what you're doing. and It gives you time in between for rest or to change the things over and you change it over with the guy or the girl. Um, But it can do entire programs where it it pings you and says, you need to do lower body today. And then you press it and then away you go. I trained in the gym for nearly 20 years now. And this thing's really fun. And I really, really enjoyed the uh variation that it's added into my training. So, you know, thinking about Lego, thinking about getting down on the ground, thinking about stuff like ten years ago, if you'd said, Oh, you're gonna love box step ups, I'd say fuck off. I'm not gonna enjoy box step-ups. Uh but all of these different training modalities are great. Pickleball's great. Yeah. I'm really enjoying, and I think that you mentioned it as well, like transitioning the um goals that you've got. Yeah. What are my aims? What are my priorities here? Uh the first time I spoke to David Sinclair, like I say four years ago, just after the first time he did Rogan, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I learned about NMN and all this shit. And I went to go and see him, and it still sounded to me a lot, the longevity movement generally, um, halfway between like something for other people because I was made of rubber and magic and 30 years old. Uh, and uh, it just it was, it was something over there, whereas now it very much feels like I need to, I really need to take heed of this it's not just about learning it and teaching it to other people it's like okay fuck like how do i start to integrate this into my life and i think that a lot of more people are feeling that as well now
1: yeah well i mean the the interesting thing is the relationship between the age of an individual and when they start to pay attention to these things and the younger you are the greater your advantage in terms of the compounding benefit of the changes so this is all about you know daily practice, right? This is all about day in and day out adhering to these things. <clears throat> but the drawback of being young is that marginal decade is a very abstract concept. Less motivating. People. Yeah. So it's harder for you to stay focused on a goal that's so far away. Conversely, when you look at people in their 60s, they've they're already on the downside. Mm. They've they watched their parents go through this. They've they've watched people live and die through horrible marginal decades. They have all the motivation in the world. If we want to use that word, they just have less room to alter the course if they're really far off. So I, I've, I've, I'll never know what the perfect time is to, to begin other than right now. (laughs) You know, the, the perfect time was yesterday. The next best time is today. Um, but it's, it's, it's always interesting to observe that difference between the extremes of age.
0: Dude, you become chronically aware of your own mortality as you enter the beginning of your 30s, I think. It's just, it's the first time where warm-ups take a little bit longer, where hangovers feel, they never felt that good, but they start to feel really, really rough. Um, And it does, it's a very strange situation, especially as a guy, especially as a guy who's taken a lot of pride in the way he moves or looks or his physique and stuff. To start to kind of at the top of a roller coaster, you go, "Oh, this isn't going up anymore." I'm kind of weightless at the top, and maybe this is the biggest or the fittest or the strongest that I'm ever going to be. Uh, and realizing that is like, "Oh fuck, I need to, I need to think more carefully about this." Um, but another side, you know, when we're talking about motivating young people to consider in, in your twenties or whatever to think about longevity, it, one of the prescriptions that you've got is you know have like a, a fifteen to thirty minute window for sleep and for wake, and like try and lock that in. If you do that throughout your 20s, you're not going to have a massive number of life experiences. Now, that being said, it's not a prescription. You're still fine for you to go and travel and change time zones and all the rest of it. But there is a degree of like, look, just go and live life. And perhaps part of the reason that you're able to deal with that when you're younger is that it is more indicative of the kind of lifestyle that you're going to live. And then as you do get a little bit older, things are going to be routinized. Kids will need to be taken to school. Work will require you to be at a place at a particular time. You can't just piss off and do a season in Ibiza or, you know, like move to Hawaii for a couple of months or whatever. Right. (laughs) Um, And I think I like that. I like the journey. I really enjoy the the arc that I can feel happening with my training, with my fitness, um, with the way that I look at stuff. And thankfully your friends grow with you and you tend to be friends with people that are your age. So you're all thinking about the same things. Yeah. You're all thinking about like, dude, do you like, if you drink the wrong amount of water on a nighttime, do you have to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, right. Dude, I feel like we need to do a bit of research on this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Peter, I really appreciate you. I really appreciate your work. I think the book's fantastic. It's been a labor of love for over half a decade for you <laughs> uh if people want to check out all of the stuff that you do where should they go
1: um i think the every, everything is under my peter atia md so the website we have a newsletter that comes out every sunday that's um i think pretty good um and then the podcast the drive thanks peter thanks for so- it